This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Episode 14 recorded on August 22, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And today on TWIPO, we have a special guest uh, joining us today from the University of California in San Francisco, Dr. Kate Mathay. I want to remind our audience, if you have questions or comments about today's podcast, or if you have questions for Dr. Mathay, we can email her, hopefully, later. She'll be happy to answer them. Uh, so if you're listening a long time from now, feel feel free, or, or even tomorrow, feel free to email us at twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. So Dr. Mathay is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics and the Division Chief of Pediatric Hematology Oncology at UCSF, and is an endowed chair in translational research in pediatric oncology there. So welcome, Dr. Mathay. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's a great pleasure, Tim. So you are certainly a well-known uh, investigator uh, in the field of pediatric oncology, particularly with ne- neuroblastoma, and we're going to get to some of that. But can we step back a little bit, perhaps, and, and tell me um, how you got interested in going into medicine in the first place? Well, I think I've always been interested in medicine once I passed through the phase of wanting to be a fireman when I was five. (laughs) Just like everyone. (laughs) Actually, it started uh, a couple of things. One is my father was an old-time GP, and I used to go on house calls with him and wait in the car. And uh, when I got into high school, my first paying job was in the laboratory at our uh, local hospital on Long Island, uh, where I worked. And first, they made me do all the urinalyses and stool analyses. And then, when they decided I was really interested, they let me do some of the blood counts and differentials. And then, the cardiologist who I, I had to mount the EKGs in those days. They were little strips you stuck onto a piece of paper. And he started teaching me how to read the EKGs. So I worked there for a couple of years, and I got very interested in medicine. And my father let me come and watch a couple of operations, which he did. He removed a subdural hematoma on someone, and I saw him put on a couple of casts. So, and I really loved medicine, uh, really, from the time I was about 15. So that sounds and, like a great experience. Um, you obviously had the personal connection. Have you been able to do the similar kinds of things for students or young people today? And do you think that's something that if, if young people are listening, they should seek? I think they should. I love, actually, my favorite, I don't like classroom teaching, but my favorite form of teaching is, is bringing high school students, college students, and medical students to clinic with me and on rounds, and then mentoring uh, residents and fellows in summer research projects is something I've done for the past 20 years. And I really enjoy the one-on-one teaching and taking them to see patients. Um, I feel like, unfortunately, medicine today takes us further and further from the bedside and more into looking at x-rays and laboratory results and not actually interacting with the patients, which is what's so much fun. 
I agree. Um, unfortunately, it, it's sort of the, the sign of our times, I guess, but perhaps as long as people like you can continue to try to encourage that, we can keep some of the humanism in medicine. What, yes. what, and then after that experience, what happened? Where, where'd you go from there? Well, then in uh, college, I actually was a chemistry major after I flunked out of French. <laughs> I, um, I decided to major in chemistry, really enjoyed it, and they tried to talk me into going to graduate school, but I quickly realized I didn't want to be holed up just in a laboratory for the rest of my life, so I went to medical school, and there I met uh, Audrey Evans, who was really a wonderful inspiration, as well as Frank Oski. So I met both hematologists and oncologists who were superb mentors and, and terrific scientists and doctors, which really encouraged me, I think, to continue in my interest uh, in hematology, which actually started doing those blood counts in high school. And then I, during the summers of uh, college, I did several summers of research in hematology laboratories in Philadelphia. So I really was interested in blood, and when I told my father, you know, he said, what are you interested in specializing in? He said, I hope you're going to go into radiology or pathology and have a good life. <laughs> I, I, actually, I wanted to do uh, oncology, and he said, oh, my God. He said, all you'll do is watch people die, because in the 60s, really, that there was still very few survivors of cancer, uh, particularly leukemia. So it, it was really a whole new world by the time I went into oncology in the 70s uh, that we had chemotherapy and we had survivors of childhood leukemia. That must have been an exciting time to go from something that was horrendous to something that was only partially horrendous. Yes, it, it really was. It's It's been fun. I've been reading that book called The Emperor of All Maladies, where they kind of go through the history of the beginning of chemotherapy. Yeah, I love that book. It's beautifully Perfect. written. I agree. And so it sounds like you were on the East Coast for the early part of your career. I was. I went to college and medical school in Philadelphia. Uh, I went to University of Pennsylvania Medical School. And then and how did you end up out West? Well, we went to, uh, my husband and I got married, and we went to Colorado for our residency. He was in internal medicine. And then from there, we went to California uh, because uh, they both had very good programs for both of us for our fellowship. And we always wanted to live in California, to be honest. <laughs> and I assume you still like it there now. <laughs> I think so. I've been here since 77. That That's a testament, yes. Right. So... Um, what interested you in, in pediatrics in particular and in pediatric, obviously it sounded like you were interested in oncology from perhaps from the beginning. Was it, was it the mentors that since they were pediatricians or just working with the kids? Uh, it was the, of course I love children and I love interacting with children and I love taking care of the whole family. So it's a very different thing than uh, medical oncology. Uh, I, you know, I found the diseases interesting because of their embryonal nature, and I just found that between you and I, the uh, people who work in pediatrics are more cheerful, more positive, more compassionate. I agree, but just to remind you, this isn't between you and I, since other people will be listening, but <laughs> yeah. I think it's pretty well known. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's well known. So, um, and then... 
when but mostly kids are just, you know, they're so wonderful to work with. They're so brave. They're so positive. They're not, uh, and they don't have all the other worries, I think, that adults have, which make it so hard, you know, in terms of taking care of their families and economics and so on. Yeah, they really are an inspiration, I agree. UCSF, was that your first uh, faculty position then? Yes, it was. I actually did my fellowship here. And I was very fortunate because my mentor was Art Ablin, who is really a great clinical researcher. Uh, he really set up a whole clinical research program here and worked very closely in the children's oncology group. And he is a great uh, humanist, I guess, a uh, very compassionate physician, a great model. And he, he had built the concept here at UCSF of team medicine. He really brought together research assistants, nurses, social workers, surgeons, pathologists. He started our pediatric tumor board here again in the late 70s. I think set up a nice model. We had a very small division at that time with just three of us, and gradually we've grown it uh, since I took over in oncology in the early 90s. We've you know grown to be a division of uh, 13 hematologists, oncologists. Sounds like he was ahead of his time. He was. I think he really was uh, in terms of the way he conducted rounds in a team-coordinated fashion, and we had team meetings every week uh, to go over things. And how did you get into clinical research? Did you have any formal training? or? Well, nothing was formal in those days. I actually started out in the lab. I did lab research first in white cell function and then in targeted therapy with monoclonal antibodies in leukemia and neuroblastoma. And But at the same time in the uh, mid-1980s, I started attending COG meetings and became very involved in, I was always interested in neuroblastoma since my exposure to Audrey Evans. And I I met Bob Seeger and we started working together on uh, risk-adapted therapy for neuroblastoma and biology. And uh, with that group, I helped put together an, a low and intermediate risk protocol and then the high-risk protocol where we did what was really quite brave then. We proposed the randomized trial of transplant uh, versus chemotherapy, and that was at an era, believe it or not, when uh, very few people believed that transplant and high-dose therapy was going to advance the cause for neuroblastoma. There was a real schism in the children's cancer group of people who only wanted to do transplant and people who only wanted to do chemotherapy, and it took a lot of convincing uh, to put that protocol through and open it. And then... Uh, it was very interesting because there wasn't much argument about the randomization between retinoic acid therapy for differentiation uh, and no therapy because that was a you know relatively inexpensive therapy compared to transplant and, and low risk. So no one thought it would work, but nobody objected to it. And then in the end, uh, both the randomizations showed a significant improvement in outcome. So that was the 3891 trial, correct? Right, right. And, but it was a real battle to, uh, as I said, to get people to agree to that because it included bone marrow purging. And so sites had to send bone marrow or send patients to have their bone marrow cleansed with the monoclonal antibodies. 
And did you have a hard time with accrual um, because of some of these preconceived notions? It was a little slower than nowadays because uh, we allowed patients to non-randomly go to chemotherapy. So about a third of the patients declined to be randomized and just went on the chemotherapy arm. Did that present we, any problems? We the results, of course, with the patients who were randomized, but uh, it, it was a little slower than our more recent two randomized trials in neuroblastoma. Once people bought into the idea of transplant, it was much easier. Sure. Did you Were you able to use the data from those patients who, who didn't get randomized in any way? We weren't. Uh, we were able to kind of look at global prognostic factors in high-risk neuroblastoma, uh, MICN, bone marrow clearing, and things like that. But we couldn't uh, look at impact of therapy for those patients because it was biased. Obviously, there were more stage three patients who were non-randomly assigned to chemotherapy because people again weren't convinced that that was necessary. Sounds like it was actually somewhat in parallel to some of the discussions going on in the adult world that are described in that book you mentioned, Emperor of All Maladies. They talk a lot about the bone marrow transplant for breast cancer and and right. and all that. And well, and, uh, you know the controversies there. And um, that was an interesting story as well. I guess readers will have to to look at that. But in that case, things didn't turn out to to be helpful. But that was somewhat the opposite from what you were able to find. And, and I guess the results of your trial, could you describe them a little bit? They were obviously important being on the cover of New England Journal of Medicine. Right. So uh, in our initial analysis in 1999, we showed a significant improvement by about 17%, I think, or 19% in event-free survival for the patients who were randomly assigned to autologous bone marrow transplant with high-dose chemotherapy compared to a group of patients randomly assigned to intensive but not requiring transplant, so to intensive chemotherapy that made them pretty sick, but they didn't require transplant. So there was a significant improvement in outcome for those undergoing transplant, and a subsequent analysis uh, later with eight years of follow-up showed that it also improved survival, not just event-free survival. And then we also had a subsequent randomization for all patients, whether they were participating in the first randomization or not. And we looked at the addition of 13 cis-retinoic acid taken orally for six months compared to no further therapy to treat minimal residual disease. And again, we showed a significant improvement in event-free survival and later in overall survival for the group treated with the differentiation therapy with retinoic acid. So that trial then led to um, two further trials, one to look at whether the purging itself was helpful, the A3973 trial. And in that trial, children were randomized either to stem cell transplant with unpurged peripheral blood stem cells, so without cleansing from the tumor cells, or to transplant with purged peripheral blood stem cells. And it's interesting that in that trial, we actually did not show an improvement in outcome with the purging, uh, perhaps because the problem was not, you know, infusing a few tumor cells with the stem cells, but more elimination of tumor cells that stay in bone and other parts of the body. 
And so, then the next trial, um, which is ongoing, is randomizing one transplant compared to two uh, consecutive transplants to give more intensive therapy. And that's the 0532, right? Right. And then we have also done a, uh, a randomization again, which is completed for minimal residual disease, where we said, okay, 13 cis retinoic acid is now the standard. Now we're going to add monoclonal antibody against neuroblastoma cells and anti-GD2 antibody, as well as cytokines, interleukin-2, and GMCSF to stimulate the immune system. And that randomization was just published last year in the New England Journal because, again, we showed a significant improvement in event-free survival with the group that added the antibody. So increasing the effectiveness of treatment for minimal residual disease uh, further improved the outcome. So I think we can say that for patients with high-risk neuroblastoma cell uh, now starting on therapy, that we probably improve their outcome if they get the transplant, 13 cis retinoic acid antibody and cytokines, we've probably got them up to about a 50% survival from the time of diagnosis, which is much better than the old 30% uh, back in the 90s. It's certainly um, uh, much better, but also a lot of uh, ways to go as well. Right, and that's why we're continuing to look at things like double transplant or other new biologic therapies uh, we are studying both in COG and in our new approaches to neuroblastoma therapy consortium that can further uh, treat minimal residual disease, hopefully without uh, more toxicity, because certainly we know the transplants are still have pretty high in both acute and late side effects. So we're uh, looking at that, and also in our next COG trial, we're, we're hoping to add targeted radiotherapy with I131 meta-iodobenzoguanidine, or MIBG, which is taken up in 90% of neuroblastomas. And we've shown in relapse patients that we have a very high response rate with this agent. So now we'd like to add this up front before patients relapse and see if we can further improve the outcome. Yeah, we talked to Bob Seeger on episode 10 and then Brian Weiss on episode 11 for those listeners who want to hear more about in detail about the, the NANT or about MIBG. These additions, it seems to be that the therapy is getting more and more complicated, coming at patients from more and more different angles. Do you think there's a limit <laughs> of what we can put them through? Well, I think there's a limit to high-dose chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but I'm hopeful that as we get into more combination of biologic therapy, that without so much suppression of the blood counts and risk of infection and mucositis, that we will be able to add to the therapy without adding a lot of side effects. Yeah, that's certainly um, the goal. I wanted to just step back a little bit to that purging uh, result. Why do you think it is, and can we learn anything about the biology of neuroblastoma that that we didn't need to purge? Were there actually contaminated, marrows contaminated with tumor that didn't re result in relapse? Well, I think it's it's a pretty complicated question, and on that particular protocol, we didn't want to hurt anyone, so all the stem cells were tested with monoclonal antibodies 
with a detection of somewhere between one in a hundred thousand and one in a million tumor cells in the stem cell preparation. And we did not give anybody back stem cells where we detected tumor cells. So they were already pretty clean, and that may be one reason why we didn't see a difference. However, we did do more sensitive testing, um, which Bob Seeger probably talked about with uh, polymerase chain reaction, which can detect even smaller amounts of disease. And many of the stem cells we gave back, though we thought they were clean, probably still had tiny, tiny amounts of tumor cells. We, using that same method, we did show that the purging decreased the tumor cells in the stem cells. So it was effective, but the problem is whether or not we remove tumor cells from the stem cells, we weren't giving anything more to remove tumor cells from the body once, you know, other than the actual high-dose chemotherapy, and that may not have been enough to get at tumor cells, for example, that were in scarred areas of primary tumors and protected from blood supply or in hypoxic areas of bone marrow so that the chemotherapy couldn't reach them or be effective. So I think that the it's most likely that the reason it didn't work was um, that some patients just had resistant tumor cells we weren't getting at, and that's probably why we didn't see a difference. Sure, that but makes sense. But we don't really know the answer until we can more... You know, if we can more effectively treat tumor cells during induction, it's possible in the future someday purging might make a difference, but I don't think we'll ever get that answer again because of the complexity and expense of doing it in a randomized trial that, at least in this setting, didn't show any difference. That also brings up the issue of patient numbers and because, you know, neuroblastoma is a wide range of, of risk groups, and, and as you parse it down into different subsets of patients, the numbers get get smaller and smaller. And one way I know that COG has begun to address this for at least other kinds of cancers is to do some collaborative international studies and open protocols up to, you know, bigger populations. Um, my understanding is you've got, you've had some interest in that, that field, that area with the French-African studies. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, what I, that's not really for our studies in COG. I have been trying to develop a program with Morocco to treat high-risk neuroblastoma. Morocco is what is considered a middle-income developing country, um, which is has much more resources than sub-Saharan Africa, but is still probably only 5% of the, the gross national product of the U.S. I have been traveling there periodically and participating in a weekly conference call along with some collaborators at St. Jude um, to both to help them develop their supportive care infrastructure, infection control, nursing, and so on. And also we have now written uh, and had several meetings about a high-risk neuroblastoma protocol. With the help of St. Jude, uh, about uh, eight or ten years ago, they started treating patients with acute myeloblastic leukemia. And I said, well, if you could treat that, <laughs> you, and they had some success. I mean, they improved from zero survivors up to about 20 to 30%. I said, if you can do that, we certainly should be able to treat some high-risk neuroblastoma. And at the time I went there, many of the patients with metastatic neuroblastoma were simply 
diagnosed and sent home with oral cytoxan as palliative treatment. So we put together a protocol that we hope would be a little bit simpler and less toxic than our upfront COG protocol, but aggressive enough to perhaps cure at least some of the patients. And that is currently being reviewed in their National Ethics Committee. We've had several meetings about getting MIBG scans more um, accessible to all the patients, right? When I came, it was only accessible to about 5% of patients who had good insurance. And I helped a, the pathologist send one of their doctors to Paris, and they learned how to do fluorescent in situ hybridization for NMIC, and they're starting to do that. And um, we met with the radiation oncologists about radiating the primary tumors. So we've tried to set up a whole multidisciplinary uh, committee there. And we had, in March, at their national uh, Moroccan oncology group or North African oncology group meeting, we had a whole day on neuroblastoma on both case presentations and, and treatment of low, intermediate, and high-risk disease and biology, and that went very well. Well, that sounds very exciting. It sounds like a real model for other countries to be able to import you know, the latest and greatest. Yeah, I hope so. We, we can't, they can't afford to do transplants on everyone. But we are, they do have now a transplant unit. Uh, they do multiple myeloma autologous transplants in adults. And one of their uh, blood bank people and anesthesiologists also went to Paris and participated in several pediatric collections of stem cells. So we're hoping this fall they'll do their first stem cell collection um, and then be able to do a few autologous transplants. And we got... Uh, Glaxo in France has at least verbally agreed to provide topotecan. So we're doing, we're trying to do a maintenance therapy for the majority of patients who can't get transplant with topotecan and cytoxan, which is, you know, a nice outpatient therapy, but quite effective. Sure. Sounds like it's really going to benefit the children of that country. Um, oh, we hope so. And we got one of their foundations that's sponsored by the princess there is going to help us to provide uh, both antibiotics and chemotherapy drugs for the kids on this protocol. So is this is is this a actual, have a research study question in there, or is it a feasibility? Mostly a feasibility, and we also, though, will be comparing. We did do a uh, review of the outcome for the last, you know, five years or three years there in the two major centers in Rabat and Casablanca. Uh, which I'm trying to help them put together for publication. And, you know, we looked at the outcome, and we're going to try to see if we actually get beyond that with this study, just from a historical control. With the backing of the Children's Oncology Group, uh, Nehal Parak, uh, who's a younger uh, colleague from Connecticut, and I have set up an international neuroblastoma tumor board online using the Cure for Kids website, and once a month, we have people present cases, and we've had participation from India, from Lebanon, from the other countries in the Middle East, a few from South America, and a little bit from North Africa. And they present cases, and we discuss them. And we're also trying to get their input to develop some treatment guidelines for some of these developing countries. Oh, that sounds terrific. I'm glad to hear that. Nehal was actually a fellow in my laboratory and uh, I hadn't heard that he was up to that, so here's a shout-out to Nahal. 
So that's, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, he and I are on a committee in PSYOP, uh, the International Society of Pediatric Oncology, to try to help develop treatment guidelines for developing countries, low-income countries. That's very exciting. What do you sort of see as the future? Um, what, what are the challenges or the opportunities for the next 10 to 15 years in this field? Well, there's too many challenges. <laughs> One challenge is to continue to improve the outcome for high-risk patients. Uh, another is to decrease the late effects of treatment by trying to do as little radiation as possible. I was just reading the most recent JCO article on uh, second and third malignancies, and there, of course, vastly increase in children who get radiation, you know, if you follow them long-term. And again, a lot of our neuroblastoma survivors who are on high-risk protocols end up deaf or hearing impaired from the platinum uh, drugs that they're treated with. So I think there, there are a lot of challenges in the survivors. Once we get a lot of survivors, I think there are huge challenges in trying to bring any kind of neuroblastoma diagnosis and therapy to uh, low-income countries. And I'm very happy to see now that ASCO, as well as PSYOP and ASPO, are taking more interest in this. Um, and there are, you know, more and more global health programs at our center and many of the major medical centers now. Uh, I have a student uh, who went to Tanzania this summer. We Skyped every week, and she was doing a project to look at their leukemia outcome and where the resources were needed. And I have a student who's going this winter to Morocco to work on uh, infection control and possibly also on the neuroblastoma outcomes. And how are all these student experiences and, and other um, organized activities around the global health issues funded? Well, that's a big problem. I mean, St. Jude has been very generous, at least in helping with my travel and lodging uh, my trips to Morocco. Uh, I'm hoping they will, once the protocol is up and running, that they will help a little bit with that. There, as I mentioned, there's Foundation in Morocco who's helping with the drugs. And I think once we open the protocol, I'll be in a better position to apply for more funding to support it. You know, things move a little bit slowly because they're just getting started using ethics committees and so on in these countries. For the students, we have a little bit of funding from our global health program, at least for their transportation to these countries. That's basically all that's covered. Uh, the people in Morocco are going to find housing for the student while she's there. They have housing at one of their, you know, family house lodgings. For Tanzania, very kind, the pediatric oncologist who's Irish, who works there and has set up their program, uh, had my students stay at her apartment. So... <laughs> But it's, it's on a shoestring right now, and I, I think as it gets rolling, we'll get more funding for this. You know, the problem is that developing countries have so many more basic needs, such as food. I mean, in our uh, project in Tanzania, 20% of the children who came in for leukemia treatment were undernourished, you know, sure. basically starved. Uh, so there, there are more pressing needs, but, you know, we feel we've made our motto in PSYOP, uh, that no child should die of cancer anywhere. So we'd really like to help um, these countries to develop uh, better systems for treating patients. 
Sounds terrific, very noble, and obviously very challenging. Do you have any advice for students who may be on the fence about wanting to go into pediatric oncology? I think they just need to try it out. You know, people who like it once they work with these kids and, and see all you that you can turn someone's life around, I think it's a, a pretty amazing field. But there are other people who can't take it. You're happy with, with your choice. and Is there anything that you would have changed along the way? Not particularly. I mean, as I said, my career is a little meandering, starting in the lab and ending up in clinical research. But, uh, you know, I think nowadays people have more advantage because there are dedicated global health programs. There are dedicated training programs in clinical research. There's much more systematic laboratory research training. So I think is if we could get a better budget for the NCI, we'd be in great shape. <laughs> well, I couldn't agree more. Anything else you'd like to, to mention? No, but thank you for this opportunity, Tim. It's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you for being here. Again, to our listeners, we're happy to read your emails, and hopefully Dr. Mathay would answer any emails that we've forwarded to her from you at twipo, that's at, at solvingkidscancer.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast, and you can also sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Once again, thanks to Donald Ludwinski, our executive producer, to Pat Buckley, our creative consultant, and to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. And who knows, maybe they'll get involved in global health as well someday. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.